y'all are the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have actually no idea where they're supposed to go. So uh, let me pray this Haitian prayer that we've been praying for the last couple weeks. Our great doctor, your word is like alcohol. When poured on an infected wound, it burns and stings, but only then can it kill germs. It doesn't burn. It doesn't do any good. Father, we're all hungry baby birds this morning. Our heart mouths are gaping wide, waiting for you to fill us. Father, <laughs> a cold wind seems to have chilled us. <laughs> Wrap us in the blanket of your word and warm us up. And Lord, may we find your word like cabbage. As we pull down the leaves, we get closer to the heart. When we get closer to the heart, it is sweeter still. Amen. Always we begin again. It's one of my favorite little quotes. Always we begin again. It is actually from one of the early church fathers named Benedict of Nursia, a.k.a. Pope, uh, not Pope, he's around now, St. Benedict. But it was been popular on and off recently by a book by Robert Dreher, who was a Methodist turned Catholic turned Eastern Orthodox. And his book's pretty good. It's pretty insufficient in delving into all those things. But it brought Benedict back into the limelight and the phrase, always we begin again. But Benedict's a guy who planned 11 different Christian communities in his lifetime and fundamentally changed the shape of Europe and every other person who's lived in or around Europe or has been influenced by Europe especially Christians all across the world, and you probably didn't even know it. He had this thing called the School of Love, which were what his nickname for the monasteries were. It's eight years of practicing the rhythms of the faith before you could be fully ordained as a monk. These rhythms were really, really important. There were daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, annual rhythms. It was about people who wanted to live oriented to the living God and with love of their neighbor. Always we begin again. I actually feel like that's kind of going on right now for me as I come back from sabbatical. Trying to re-embrace my love and desire to bring God's word to bear to you, into our lives, to knead it into our communal life together, in our kitchens, in our bedrooms, in our boardrooms, in our classrooms, all those places we inhabit. I bring this up for several reasons, because not only am I beginning again, but Redeemer is beginning again. Always we begin anew. And, frankly, the world around us is beginning again. Between COVID and cultural chaos, things are being reshaped in our midst, reimaginations of, and reworked in every sphere of life. And I'm not here to tell you it's all been great, and I'm not here to tell you it's all been awful. I don't think anyone can know how to assess fully how things are changing. But I'm confident of this, that in the power of our triune God, that we live in one of the greatest opportunities to emerge as a people more beautiful and more faithful, a more transformed and transformative presence as the people of God than we have at least in my lifetime and many, maybe many lifetimes. See, we are in the chrysalis, the cocoon, and in the chrysalis and the cocoon is where the magic happens. The liminal, the betwixt and between is where we see the miracles that God does. And because of the grace and the mercy of our triune God and the power of Jesus and the spirit working in us, the people of God have this assurance that after the chrysalis comes wings and flight. And that we may honor God, love neighbor, 
and rest in the presence of the one who loves us. And so today, it's really important that we start to talk about one of the foundational rhythms that were both part of Benedict's communities and the church throughout its history, and even when the church was the covenant community of Israel. What the Father and the Son and the Spirit did after the work of creation, before he was to begin again. Think about it. Endoplasmic reticuli, opposable thumbs, nebulae, or nebulae, nebula, I don't know, nebulases, <laughs> amoeba, asteroids, atmospheres, and anthropoids. He had created, and the scripture says that he did something afterward in just two words that are so profound for a superhero to do. God rested. It's an almost ludicrous statement. God rested. The supreme and ceaseless power, generative reality of the universe, that power and person rested. I would have done an all-out mic drop. I would have... Did we, we bring the tape in? Second mic today. No, no, no. Can we get another one so I look like I'm at a press conference? Yes, we can. <laughs> um, I'd have had like angels like practicing for, for years or something or whatever, since years didn't really exist before that. But whatever, you know, they would have been ready to go and it would have been like a montage, one shining moment kind of thing, you know. And then that's what I would have done on the seventh day. But this is what the scripture says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God, is, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Because he was exhausted. Oh, he's a superhero, the super superhero. God has no limits like fatigue or exhaustion. And by revelation and other places in scripture, we know that he never slumbers or sleeps. So what is going on here? The scripture in the second verse, in the second chapter of the entire Bible, still on the front page, God rests. The only thing in the universe that doesn't need to rest, rests. Why? Great question. I'm not exactly sure, but the scripture does give us hints of it for joy. For us to learn something about him, to experience something of him, for his own enjoyment within the Trinity. Probably a zillion th uh, reasons, but enjoyment is clearly getting a punctuation point, and that punctuation point is an exclamation. God enjoyed what he had just done, what and who he had just made. Okay, so God rested, but he did more than just rest on that seventh day. He actually made it holy. The word just means set apart. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Why did he do it? Why did he make it holy? Because that was the day of rest. Not the holy days or the good work days he had in working. But he made it holy because that's the day he rested. Amazing. It's so great that God made a day of rest for himself. A holy day, a holiday, if you will. Now, you've got to resist the temptation and the anthropomorphizing of the Trinity sitting around, you know. <laughs> definitely a better sermon going on in there than it is out here. You know, they don't have poolside umbrella drinks or anything like that. That's too human thinking about it. But we must imagine the truly unique reality, a picture of, our, of, of, 
of in our mind of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the, and the Spirit relating to each other in rest. There's a theological word for this. It's a theological nerd word, and it's called perichoresis. It's a word that means something like intercircling movement of the Trinity. One of our pastors in our denomination writes it like this. Each of the divine persons centers upon the other. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration onto them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the other two. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church called this perichoresis. Notice the word choresis has choreography tied to it. It means literally a dance to flow around. So what did God do on the seventh day? He rested in perichoresis. You could say he danced. They enjoyed each other and the universe they created. They gave, you know, celebratory fist bumps or something like that. The beauty before them had them rest. And they were so thankful to see the goodness of their work especially these little image bearers that were running around. They were there to exemplify and supervise the earth that he had made. And so they rested and made it a one in seven reality on that seventh day for them to rest and for the universe, that they would rest in that one in seven and that the rest of the universe would also play that out in some ways. In fact, the Bible, I don't know if you're familiar with the way this thing works, but it's full of rest from our labors and living in patterns of rejuvenation and celebration, if you will, dance. You know this from history books, back when we would give land a year of seven for it to lie fallow, before everything got kind of Monsantoized. The entire economic, social, and political system of Israel danced in the rhythms of one through se one and seven. Every seven days rest, even when they were wandering in the desert, every seventh day rest and worship. Every seven years, the land would lay fallow. This wasn't just about agriculture, but about rest as well. Every 49th year, the seven of the seven years, the entire economy would be overturned in Israel. Debts canceled, land returned to its original family owners. And no one would work that year. Could you imagine planning a society about not working for a year? You're for it. <laughs> Me too. I am 49 this week, so see ya. <laughs> I'm back off. One thing I'd love for you guys to do is to really lean into these rhythms, the days, the weeks, the years, what one in seven would look like, and have conversations about that. I hope to send you some, some, some information, some resources, but don't wait for me in the looking back email. Talk about it. Work through it with each other. There is a book called Subversive, Subversive Sabbath that's really good, and then The Rest of God, also very good. I'll try to get that back to you in the email this week. So this section of Genesis is actually baked into the entire redemptive story. Because he didn't just make it holy for him, he made it for us, too. He made it holy for us, too. And you've got to remember back to who's hearing this the first time. It's the wandering people of Israel, right? They just got out of 400 years of excruciating slavery. In fact, the last bit was even worse because they took the straw away for the, for the bricks, right? Exhausted from a long journey's desert. They'd already started their grumbling. They were already, um, uh, well, we had that 
golden calf incident that happened in there too. Moses came down pretty frustrated about that. And so they're already getting tempted to, to see how the world works around them differently than the way God has been guiding them. Moses comes down. Well, even before then, he had been like, hey, every sixth day, what I want you to do is gather two parts of the food and birds and, and the manna, and then you don't have to work on the seventh day. So it was already in their pattern. And then these words come along, the ones from Genesis 1 and 2. So you're sitting around the desert campfire trying to orient yourself to this world, and Moses comes with the law of God, which includes in it a commandment to keep that Sabbath holy, and says this creation story to you. And you're like, oh, that's why we do this. We rest because God rested. We rest because God made us and the rest of the universe with this rhythm of rest within us. And he made it holy, which is why we participate in that holy day. Egypt treated them like less than human beings, less than animals in God's work. Because in God's work, even your, even your animals get rest, one and seven. The Babylonian myths of the day, the gods of their day were saying things like, oh, the gods created you to be an accoutrement of their lifestyle. In fact, you were, they were born of... Um, uh, uh, the blood of evil, I don't know this by heart, so I had to write this part down. The blood of Kingu, an evil figure, and hence their eternal slavement to the gods because they were created out of this evil person. Those were the myths running around their world. And God comes in with the earth-shattering myth that says, not only you bear my image, but you rest with me, in me, like me. fact that Sabbath is creational and not post-fall should actually blow our minds. God didn't rest because there's something wrong with him, and we don't rest because there's something wrong with us. There is something wrong with us. We'll get to that. But rest is not a product of sin. A holy day is not a product of sin. Have you ever thought about how ridiculously reliant and finite we are made? I know the doctors are like, yup. <laughs> we spend a third of our lives asleep, if we're doing it right. We get hungry two or three times a day, four or five if you're taking Chinese takeout. <laughs> this divine rhythm is baked into creation not because of the fall, though within the fall, it has a beautiful redemptive quality. I don't know exactly why, but there is no denying it. And there's no denying that there's nothing in our modern life that helps us do it. Nothing. Everything fights against it. But humans are more fully human as they rest in the rhythms of their week. It's in our DNA, the very structure of creation, and we deny it to our own detriment. And yet we, with almost tireless zeal, seem to resist this amazing gift to rest in one in seven. And there's all sorts of reasons for it. Most of it is to be more productive. I was sitting with two businessmen in Charlotte, um, basically the equivalent of either you know Cagney's or Cloverdale Kitchen. And they were two production managers. And we like, they're kind of 
half-joking about how they could increase productivity for each of their um, companies very easily, 40% increase. And one looked at the other and he said, how? He goes, Saturday and Sunday. Now, joking, I hope, fully. <laughs> but it's our instinct to do something like that. Remember what is on the top, uh, on the, on the above many concentration camps in Germany. Albrecht, Albrecht macht free. Work makes you free. It's a lie from hell. I want us to reimagine the Sabbath together in this restless world. I know we got Chick-fil-A. That's good. But we got more to do, more to not do. If you have hung out in Jewish communities at all, the, the appliances, and if you get new modern appliances today, they will turn, you can get, take, put it on like Jewish mode or Sabbat mode. It's not called Jewish mode, sorry. Elevators. When we lived in St. Louis, people would walk to synagogue so far. But it's not just a Jewish thing. Christians have been doing this for centuries, y'all. There are plenty of people who, in our community right now, have, have leaned into this in really beautiful ways. It's good to see you guys back, the Robertsons. The, uh, the Robertsons, Joanna and Palmer, do a Sunday right. It is deeply restful. Go have a conversation with Lisa Turner about how her Sabbath rhythms work, how she's really gotten into the blessing of this. The horns are really good at it too. My favorite is from this pastor within our kind of greater tradition, his name was Irfan Hughes, and he would tell the story, what a great name by the way, Irfan Hughes, like a total protagonist in any story. <laughs> but he said that his, his mom had a basket up in the attic that were the Sabbath toys. And you could not wait for Sunday because you got Sabbath toys that day. It's as simple as it is excruciatingly difficult to order your lives around rest and to keep that day holy. And again, nothing in our culture does this. So God rests and he makes a day holy for us and we rest and I want to say to you, that makes us holy. And I'm going to talk about that in two ways. One, in the very kind of normal way, which is set apart holy. It makes us odd. It makes us different. We're imitators of God, and so we rest like he does. And we enact his reign on earth, embody it, so part of that is our rest. And that will make us odd. Now remember, that also means you're beasts of burden, according to the Old Testament, but metaphorically, those who work for you and, all the, uh, and anybody you oversee or manage, which includes parents. How different would we look? I was talking, I heard about a group of investors. They're like, I don't know what kind of investors they are. They give a lot of money to other businesses to help them grow better. It's not for, yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm not good at business. <laughs> but they will not invest in that company unless their leadership takes one in seven up. And then another group of entrepreneurs who are trying to work this out and they've built into their covenant together that they will live off six-seventh of their salary and take the seventh year off to rejuvenate and reimagine and get back in. 
that they see fit. And now what they're trying to do is kind of an opt-in program for the people that work for them so that raises and or matching gifts or anything like that would go towards that seventh year where people could quit that off. What a great way to imagine it. I'm not saying everyone has to go implement that plan perfectly or the way that they thought it up, but what a great thing to start to imagine. Could you imagine saying, oh, I'm not going to take a raise for this year or the next year, but in four years I'll have enough. I got down a rabbit trail, y'all, with Mars companies, the, you know, the bars, the candies. They are rethinking. I went so far down this website and then to another website. I was just a complete rabbit trail about how they're thinking about the cocoa and, um, and the sugars that they're making in the land they're doing and how they're trying to think about and, uh, and I asked somebody else who knew, knows about it, and I said, well, it's not public per se, but it's based on the year of Jubilee, which is the seventh of the seventh year. Unbelievable. I used to feel built guilty about pastor sabbaticals. Now I'm like, everyone should get one. How do we figure this out? Tish Harrison Warren, who went here, went to Wake, said that Christians should be the most well-rested humans on earth. And I would just add to that, also the tiredest for having a great work week and giving themselves to those laborers, readying themselves to rest. So Sabbath means something that, something like being set apart or odd in the world. But you'll have a temptation if you start down this road, and that is either to blow it off and say something like, well, Jesus is our Sabbath rest, he is, we'll talk about that. Or that you'll get into this like legalism space that declares how Sabbath not just should be kept for you, but for everybody else exactly the way you do it. And so we have this twin temptation to get the perfect checklist or to abandon the checklist completely, and both are very dangerous. During my ordination exam, and our brother Steve Engel was there, he was asked, I was asked my view of the Sabbath. And so then he asked me a question. Well, he actually told me that if I turned my TV on on Sunday, that it was akin to me committing adultery because they're in the top 10 commandments together and you have it. And I said, I want to assure you that I believe in Sabbath rest, not just one and seven, but on Sunday in particular, there's a good theological argument that goes on there. But I said, let me guarantee you that I do not hold that view and neither does my wife. That was supposed to be much funnier than it came <laughs> up. And so that is a kind of like, oh my gosh, that level. Now I get his point because his point is the love of the Sabbath but, and the, the law of God as a whole. But I, when I was planning a church with Howard Brown, my colleague in Charlotte, he went off to go see this guy. Uh, oh no, they met at a conference. Uh, this guy named Mark Driscoll, who you may have heard of in recent areas. And Pastor, came, Pastor Howard came back and said, He's got some really interesting and cool things that are going on, but he hasn't taken a day off in three years. He's not being human, and I don't really want to hang out. You can either be too proud not to rest or too proud to rest. I guess my one piece of advice for you guys is treat it like it's a holy day because it is. And you'll be made holy in doing so, by returning sanctified. But the Bible talks about Sabbath in another way, too. Sabbath rest. It uses the language of entering into Sabbath rest. 
And that's when things kind of blow up. So tighten your chain straps up here a little bit because what's really different about the seventh day is that it is like the verb diction, the verbs, the diction, and the structure are, are not absolutely. They're significantly different than the first six days. People who hold to 24-hour day creation, solar days, they don't even add the seventh day because it looks so wonky. It just doesn't work like that. If you're kind of the official traditional view, you're a six 24-hour creation person because the seventh day has an eternality to it. It has a way of, of infiltrating the rest of the world. That's why when you get into the New Testament, and our own standards say this, that Sabbath is about creation. It's also about salvation. The seventh day of rest is real, but it's, a, it's analogous, I don't want to say metaphor, representational of God's Trinitarian delight in himself and his welcoming us into that delight, into the dance. Because it doesn't just point to God's resting or even our resting, but the utterly satisfied state of God himself in himself, which by the gospel he invites us into. That's entering Sabbath rest that is eternal. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit rested together and by his, their, his great mercy, call us into rest with him. And salvation, the way of God, was made because of the Son. And now he invites us to enter into this divine dance, not just weekly or every seven years or every 49, but eternally and every seven and every seven and every seven. Not, not, but and. Our Lord Jesus himself said, the son of the man, son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is not exemption from Sabbath practice. It's not indifference to Sabbath. Uh, a Sabbath practice. It's the gift of God built into creation. It's the fulfillment of an invitation, even command to Sabbath practice, to delight with the Trinity. Now, weekly, and for eternity. Like I said, when things get complicated, I often go to the Westminster Standards, the Confession and Catechism, and it says this, to continue, in the Sabbath is about continuing or remembering the two great benefits that are creation and redemption. Sabbath is not about creating and growing, just about creation or growing in the holiness of God's intent for us. It is about the rescue of God. And in one way, they're referring to the fact that not only God did God work for his six days and rest on the seventh, but our Lord Jesus did too. You know that the three days in the tomb between Good Friday and Easter are not actually three 24-hour days. There's only one 24-hour day there. That's Saturday. That's the Sabbath. God himself rested after creation. And you have to put this in quotes, but Jesus himself rested in the tomb on the Sabbath after the crucifixion. This is our hope and the power after the resurrection that lifts us up to the heavenly dance, y'all. Because on that Sunday morning, God himself would get back to work and raise him from the dead. 
and bring us into his eternal rest. This is good, good news. An invitation to dance, to rest with God. So on a very practical note, set the table real nice on Sunday. But if you set it real nice Monday, or Monday through Saturday, then get the paper plates out. Set it apart. Garden, unless you do it all the time, then don't garden. I'm not here to declare exactly how you're supposed to do it other than just treat it like it's holy and it's a gift from you and it's a taste of the great welcome of God to sit in that state. And then we read something like this when Jesus says, when, when, when you fail, when you get too busy, the big caveat for not keeping Sabbath is there's an ox in the ditch because the scripture allows for that. But we got so many oxen and so many fake ditches. <laughs> and when you do fail, always we begin anew. And hear our Lord's words, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, this is a hard one for us. There's just so many ways in which all of our lives are shaped around productivity, uh, work, um, not rest, but something like avoidance and distraction. So help us, Lord. We want to grow in these ways. We want to participate in the perichoresis of God. And let us always be reminded that we can return to you and that you'll give us rest. Amen.